<laughs> How about you? Do you have your stuff on silent? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's we were just starting the show. Actually. That's okay. It is officially started. It is started. Okay. It's Tiny House Podcast. I'm very. I'm Michelle. And this is at Mark Grimes on Twitter. <laughs> oh, I'm uh, going to do that from now on. And today we have, <clears throat> as our guest, this is really rocking, kind of clunky show this morning with our start. Uh, we have Eli Spivak here in Portland, Oregon, not in the studio with us today, but you are in, in Oregon, right, still? You're oh, here? yes, I'm in Portland, Northeast Portland. Awesome, yeah. And Eli has been someone that I've kind of followed tangentially uh, through his work. He... Um, I may get this wrong, Eli, but from what I understand about you, you're you're a big sustainability person. You constructed a lot of um, community housing projects, um, and you are somewhat involved in the tiny house movement. Is that right? Yes, I um, I did affordable housing development for about ten years in Portland, and went off on my own developing small communities of homes. Loved building smaller and smaller as a way to get some affordability. Um, market rate without public subsidies, which can kill a lot of brain cells. And <laughs> to do that, I built some accessory dwelling units. I built some detached bedrooms. I've got two tiny homes on wheels. Um, I've got two um, side yard sheds right now. And um, I do things both above board and sometimes pre-legal. Um, and I, I love just trying to do creative things with the codes to get some smaller spaces people can live in as a way to create some housing, you know, between the cost of a tent and the least expensive house that we can build. There's a big range there. Right on. Awesome. Pre-legal. Yeah, pre-legal. Can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Well, in Portland, we've got um, a pretty robust um, accessory dwelling unit code, and we're getting a lot of them built, one per day last year. Um, I did a lot of advocacy around that. But if you're going down to the size of a, you know, a shed or a, or a house on wheels, they're not legal in residential zones in Portland. And there's been some local advocacy to try and change that. But for now, that remains the case. So it doesn't mean we don't have them. We've got more in Portland. But um, it means that they're under the radar screen. Um, and and we're hoping that that will change also over time. But we're not there yet. Gotcha. How many tiny houses do you have? Have You said you had two? I've got two tiny houses on wheels. And they're both hosted at the tiny house caravan. Oh, okay. Um, hotel, um, where I rent them out by the month and they rent them out by the night. And then I've got a couple um, little cabins that I bought from an evangelical church camp <laughs> where they have a little retreat in southeast Portland and bought them up to a property in northeast where I've got some um, sort of detached bedrooms um, occupied now. Is the, 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 the church camp that you're referring to the one out there close to um, uh, University Community Center near in the Cully area, not Cully. In um, what's that place where we're going to do the tiny house? Um, well, I think it's out of Fifty Second and Woodstock, southeast. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a camp there. Yep, exactly. Yep. It's got they got hundreds of tiny houses out there dating back to World War II, and they're slowly replacing them with with larger tiny homes. And the ones that they are getting rid of, they're just big. Oh, I don't. I I got some for cheap just bring a hot tub trailer and wheel them away from there. And they need some work, but they're rustic and um, and just sort of a fun experiment in trying to create some um, some really inexpensive housing. But they don't have any plumbing or electrical, so they have to have access to a main house. Um, and in my case, I wired them up, um, insulated them, interior finish, made them fully livable, put smoke detectors in so they're safe. Uh, they're still not... Um, legal to occupy 
but um, we've met all the life safety things you would you would want to have in a in a living space, and no. people have access to the main house. Right. Those things were on foundations at the church camp. They're on skids. Skids. And what what are they on now? Still on the skids? Uh, on CME blocks with some new um, beams, sort of holding them up because the old ones that they originally came with were rut well, they're rotting out a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we, we firmed up the foundations, but they're not on foundations or on wheels. Where are they now? Uh, northeast Portland, in the Cully neighborhood. In Cully. In Cully. Oh, oh. They're the ones we heard about. Oh, wow! Interesting. Yeah. So, so, um, so, what is your what's your your background? How did you get into the tiny house movement? I was. Uh, well, let's see. I I came here working for Habitat for Humanity, so I have a construction background. I when I went off on my own, I, I really started doing um, community oriented housing projects. So one was a conversion of a sevenplex into six homes and a common area unit that everyone could share and loved it. Lived there for seven years. After that, I decided, okay, I'll be my own developer. And I wanted to figure out how to do some smaller stuff and especially trying to figure out how you can get some affordability nestled within existing neighborhoods. Uh, so I did a project in the Saban neighborhood, which um, included um, a house, a detached garage that I converted to an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, and built a new house and a new accessory dwelling unit. Sold them all separately so that the houses sold, you know, three hundred thousand kind of range, which is, you know, par for the course in that neighborhood at the time. Um, but the accessory dwelling unit sold for about a third of that. So it was a way of just trying to get some affordability by building small units. And did a lot of advocacy in Portland to try and make it easier for others to do accessory dwellings. And um, but I wanted to go smaller, and I, I did one project where I bought a little house. Um, on a 50 by 100 foot lot towards the, the house is really 60 feet back from the street and it would be a classic teardown. Uh, but instead I built with my crew two 12 by 14 foot detached bedrooms, each of those with bathrooms, um, as yet another way to try and get some affordability, um, sort of like a detached um, bedroom group house that gives people the autonomy of having their own four walls. Um, but the opportunity for community in the mm-hmm. common spaces. Yeah. And I've kept, you know, twisting around different models, but all the projects I do have um, relatively small homes, some very small homes, and some maybe creative use of the land use rules and some shared common spaces, interior and exterior. Because if you live in a small space, sometimes it's nice to have larger space to um, get out to. When you do these projects, I understand you're like... Um I can't remember the word you just used, but I think you said skirting the rules. Did you, Sometimes. Is that the word? Okay. So so when the project is complete, is it then inspected? Or are you are you really, like, under the radar with these projects? Well, most projects I do are above the radar screen, I should say. Um, there's just occasionally times where Portland um, is um, outlawing something that I think should be allowed and so I feel in those situations sometimes it's okay if I if I really make sure to adhere to life safety requirements which are really important right um, then I'm not the only person doing this I mean then I then I might be okay doing a project that's not going to get inspected um, then it's really me um, making sure that the product done safely um, there obviously can be abuse of that um, right and I'm not I'm not out there supporting um, regulations that allow someone to um, put six dead RVs in a backyard and renting them out. Right. Uh, but I think that there's great examples I worked with. Um, I, I, early on, I did some biking tours, including with Linda Menard, who's gone in to do some great stuff of tiny house 
um, tiny houses in Portland, and we just said, you know, we're going to let people see what these things look like, get them inspired, um, whether or not they're above board. And sometimes that's the way change happens, is you show things off that aren't quite legal yet, and people get excited about it, and they figure out how to make it legal. Absolutely. Um, speaking of that, um, very recently, was it last week or the week before, you were invited to... Uh to a forum, a discussion forum here in Portland about the housing crisis and sort of brainstorming various uh, various options with the leaders in this community. And can you tell us about that process? I read the article. I was really interested in your in your involvement in that. Can you give us kind of the uh, your aha moment during that process? Yeah, well, Portland is um, amidst a housing crisis, and people are just getting outbid for basic shelter. Um, there's a lot of people keep coming to town, and we haven't built very much. And largely, it's people looking it's small households, one and two person households, are the by far, whether it's young people or people downsizing, um, it's a growing demographic. So I, I'm involved in a couple processes that Portland's going through to try and create more affordable housing. And one of those is the residential infill project, which is. Uh, uh, probably a 16-month process to update the single-family zoning code in Portland. And one of the ideas on there is to allow, you know, an ex one, not just one accessory dwelling unit, but a, perhaps a second one under certain situations. Um, other ideas are allowed in internal conversions of existing homes, um, allowing a density bonus for smaller homes. Um, there's there's several ideas percolating that would. Um, be a way that a builder could get more front doors on what otherwise would be a single-family lot. And the homes behind those front doors could be smaller. Um, so that's one process. Another process Portland's already hitting city council with is to update the zoning in the city and um, the zoning map. And there, there's some chances to maybe zone some more portions of the city as multi-dwelling zones. Um, we have a lot of the city covered with yellow on our map, which means single-family zoning. And in those areas, you're, you're unlikely to get small, small units. Um, so those are a couple um, processes that are going through right now. Um, the mayor's office has indicated that they would like to create a legal path for tiny homes on wheels. Hmm. Uh, I mean, a year ago, we had a string of two or three meetings with the mayor's office, um, but it hasn't happened yet. And I'm not sure that it's risen up to the political priority that I wish it did. Uh, so that, that's another possibility. If you go back to World War II in Portland, when we had our last real housing crisis, um, because of people coming to work on the ships, uh, the city just threw away the books, basically. That's why they allowed internal conversions of houses, new huh. kitchens all over the place. That's why you see in, like, last edition, multiple mailboxes on front doors, because a lot of um, hmm. homes were made into multiple tiny homes, effectively, and, um, and they were grandfathered in, so they remain in place today. Wow. Is a lot of that because of the city and issues of taxation that they don't, want smaller homes because it means less revenue for them for some of that i don't think it's a revenue issue i think it's um once most of the city or not mo a lot of the city area got zoned for single family after world war ii as did cities across the country um, people love that single family zoning they cling to it mm -hmm. um and i think it's more a neighbor um a neighbor demand to keep these neighborhoods looking and feeling like single-family neighborhoods. And I support that. I think that our neighborhoods have a great look and feel, but I think we need to um, allow it to look like a single-family neighborhood, but actually have um, discrete density slipped into it, which could be in the form of tiny houses, you know, accessory dwelling units that look like um, 
the same sort of form and massing of a garage, but you've really got someone living in there instead of a car. And that's where the opportunity is, I think, is to allow smaller units within our neighborhoods so they still have the great look and feel of neighborhoods that we enjoy today. Um, and maybe legalize some of the housing forms that were built before World War II, like this courtyard, um, plexes, oh, yeah. um, duplexes, trides, quads. People love that stuff. I that do. World War II. And there's much less zoning to support that type of housing now than there was back then. Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so so the I want to go back to ask you, before you worked at Habitat for Humanity, what what is it what is it about you that had you go in this line of thinking as opposed to becoming just a regular commercial builder? Well, before Habitat for Humanity, I was doing physics undergrad, so I, I sort yeah. of departed from that because I wanted to have something more tactile um, and not be stuck in a laboratory with optical equipment and getting pale over the years, <laughs> as many grad students did in my line of work. Um, but I, I came at it, uh, I grew up in a household in Washington, D.C., where energy efficiency, we were first in the neighborhood to have solar panels, um, was really important. Wow. And um, one of my drivers for looking at small homes is the environmental benefits of it. And you may have talked already with um, Oregon Department of Environmental Quality. Jordan Palmieri has done some sort of nationally leading research showing the environmental benefits of smaller homes. And that's been a motivator to me. We've got um, an amazing tripling of the amount of square footage per person um, over a 50-year period that we expect as a, you know, a, um, in our housing. And that comes with it a big climate cost. So I'm um, looking at ways to smaller homes um, for environmental reasons, um, in addition to affordable housing reasons. Hmm. Do, do you, by any chance, know Les Walker? I do not. I know his name, but I've not met him. Oh, wow. We, we had him as a guest, and it was a fascinating conversation we had, uh, actually, the week before last? Last week, maybe. It hmm. aired. When it hit the air, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I don't live in a tiny house now. I, I live in a half of a duplex on a development I did. But for seven years, I lived, I mean, I lived in group housing for many years in Portland, and then for seven years lived in a 600-square-foot um, unit where just end up being with my wife and our first child. Um, and I like living in a small place that, you know, you can clean up yeah. in the length of a CD. And um, <laughs> and when things come into the house, you have to make sure you've got something ready to go out of the house, right. Um, right. especially in those years of um, starting a family when things tend to come in a lot. I, right. I love that yardstick, clean up in the length of a CD. Of a CD exactly. <laughs> I can't do it. We can't do it anymore, thanks to having two kids and a larger house. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, I my uh, my tiny house was recently has been featured actually twice um, on Oregon Live and then once in the in the home and garden section pretty recently. Um, one of the things that I was really surprised by initially and less surprised the second time was the cynics, um, the critics, um, and how people that truly don't I think don't understand the tiny house movement or the goals therein, um, just personally and publicly attacking and and. What do you say to the cynics? What What is it you're hearing that um, that it, you think is our biggest, uh, shall we say, uh, challenge to overcome? Is it public perception? Is it governmental regulations? Are they just slow to pick up the ball? What What do you think is our biggest? What do you say to the cynics? Well, what are they attack? What part of it are they attacking? Maybe I, I haven't heard that directly. Well, uh, so for instance, a lot of them said that the housing crisis is due to 
you know, the economy, and the economy is due to the governmental policies, which, you know, have reduced, have increased our education costs, and, you know, they, they can pretty much spin the tiny house movement as to the, as to the result of any governmental bad decision. Um, but they're also talking about, you know, I don't want people in tiny, crappy little tiny houses parked in my back alley in my neighborhood. Um, they're also talking about, um, they don't want homeless people. There's, there's a sort of, some people equate tiny houses with a homeless population um, uh, solution as well. Well, I think that there is a long-standing history in the United States of um, what you might call exclusionary zoning, yeah. um, where people in a neighborhood who want the neighborhood to be just like it is and of a certain, um, you know, um, socioeconomic level to resist um, types of housing that might allow people with lower means to live there. Um, and um, some of it's intentional, some of it's unintentional. I mean, I was on the East Coast where there's neighborhoods where people fight like the Dickens to preserve four-acre minimum lot sizes. Wow. Um, and they, they even fighting sewer lines to go through there's neighbor to be installed because uh -huh. then once the sewer line's in, then they won't have don't be able to justify the four-acre minimum anymore for drain fields. Uh -huh. um, so that's an extreme version of, of kind of a nimbyism. Uh, but I think in the neighborhoods in, in Portland, there's definitely more openness than there is on the East Coast, and we actually have state land use regulations requiring every city to provide a mix of housing types, including houses and apartments. I, I think that there's, um, within the neighborhood association constituencies, there's people across the spectrum. Some are um, really um, don't want anything to change. Um, some don't want anything, anything to change, but they do recognize that their neighborhood's on track to becoming only affordable to millionaires, and they don't want that to be the case. They want their kids to be able to afford to live there. They want themselves to be able to downsize into a smaller house and live in the same neighborhood. So you do see within the neighborhood association world um, support for, for smaller housing options. Um, and um, so it's sort of a split constituency, I'd say. Um, in terms of tiny houses on wheels, I think that um, the nice thing is that many of them are beautiful looking, mm -hmm. and I think that gives... Um, them is really important um, because there will always be concerns about things that are perceived as ugly being park places and people living in them. Um, but if they're if they're if they're like little violins, then um, it's hard to hard to diss that. Um, you you have a a really broad um, scope of of experience and knowledge about this movement. It's really pl a pleasure to talk with you. So what what do you what do you what do you think about the movement as it is today, and where do you see it? Where do you think it's going to go? Is it is it like rap music, where it's here to stay, or is it something that will fade? I think it's gonna. I think it's here to stay. Um, I think that we just can't afford as a society um, to um, have this housing gap that. The market used to provide, we used to have boarding houses, you know, we used to have SROs, we used to have market-based ways people could legally live, you know, off the streets um, in, in, in structures that were um, much less expensive than a single-family house or even an apartment. What's and an we, SRO? SRO, uh, single-room occupancy. Oh, okay. Um, and we, we've got this housing gap where um, the... You know, there's just nothing you can live in between a tent and a $100,000 house. And there's a lot of people who are 
oftentimes working regular jobs, you can't afford to, to make that um, gap. And then affordable subsidized housing, which I strongly believe in, um, is unfortunately like winning a lottery ticket. I mean, yeah. there's not very many units out yeah. there. It yeah. takes a lot of money to subsidize a single unit. Yeah. So I think there's a big opening for, uh, well, that's what I'm talking about the pre-legal. People are doing it anyway. People are doubling up in houses. People are living in, in school buses and things that really aren't very safe. And I think that at some point the government regulations need to say, you know, let's, this is a, a safe place to live. Let's make that legal to live in. Um, right. I did a lot of work with early on with Dignity Village in northeast Portland. Oh, yeah. Um, for the first couple of years that they were getting started. And that's a great example of it. I mean, folks just said, we're tired of being on the streets. You know, we're industrious. We're willing to take the steps to organize as a community. And when necessary, um, tell people they break the rules, they got to leave, even though residents know exactly what that means. It's putting someone back on the street and built a community of some of the most innovative tiny houses you're likely to see. Wow. Um, that's so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great model. I think that there is... Um, it's really important with the model to have the conversation live with organizations like um, Central City Concern or, or or maybe join or organizations that work with people who are um, who are right on the edge of homelessness or already homeless um, because that's where I think we could really use um, as people most desperately in need of housing. I also love the work of people who are doing tiny homes out of um, concern for the environment simple living, yeah. uh, people who are doing it for all those great reasons as well. Uh, but they're not necessarily going to be the, the most compelling advocates to change the rules uh, because a lot of times folks in that situation do have other housing choices. Um, and I fully, I mean, I, I love that they're, they're taking the lead on um, building this movement. Um, but I think that some of the people who could benefit most from the movement are people who don't have any other choices in, in where they where they sleep. So in order for advocacy to, I'm, I'm just, I'm recharacterizing what you're saying and it may not be accurate, Eli, but in, in order for advocacy to be effective in terms of changing uh, ordinances, you have to have a, a, a population that's in need. Why, why can't the, the movement as it is with, if you don't, if you don't mind this expression, yuppies building these beautiful homes, why can't that be enough as an indicator of a need? It, it might be enough, um, but just point of fact, it hasn't been yet. I see. Um, I mean, I think that it's a housing crisis. And the, the most, um, the people being hurt in the housing crisis, or people are being hurt at all, at all, but um, the um, actual, um, it, it's hardest on those at the bottom of the bottommost rungs. Of course. And to the extent that this tiny house um um, form of housing can um, help people off the street um, at, a, at a lower cost per unit than what's otherwise available, um, then that's pretty compelling. Right. Uh, yeah. Are you, um, so again, pretty recently in the past few weeks, there's been some, what I perceive to be, correct me if I'm wrong, sort of conflicting legislation. So um, there's a new, uh, there's a new sort of dictum coming out of the state of California uh, wherein they're saying, look, um, unless your tiny house is REVA certified, inspected, licensed, built by a REVA certified person, if you get caught transporting one or selling one without REVA certification, there'll be fines. Um, what they're trying to do is really, really emphasize the safety and the inspection and the, you know, again, the permits and the fines associated with tiny houses. Washington State is really starting to classify tiny houses. They are 
Um, they're telling the tiny house builders that are not REVA certified, sort of a shot across the bow, you need to be certified in some level, and they're starting to, to push back a little bit on these more creative builders like our friend uh, um, Abe Zimmerman at Zilvardo's. And at the same time, HUD on the other end of the country is also saying, oh, by the way, um, we're now putting together some legislation that says RVs cannot and will not ever be considered permanent domiciles. Wow. Um, the code to build them um, was never meant as a permanent domicile. So almost seems to be conflicting legislation. It's a little confusing and I have to say a little uh, discouraging for those of us in the tiny house movement. Um, are you familiar with those with those new relatively new developments? Do you, have I have I got my information wrong? And what's your response? I'm not as familiar as you are with that stuff, so I'm going to trust your information on it. Um, I, um, I mean, I think it's it's um, it's mostly around life and safety issues, and I think that I'm pretty sympathetic to life safety requirements. I think it's good to have those in place to avoid abuses. However, I think that um, our um, the life safety expectations that we um, embody in our codes, even for single family homes, have gotten a bit out of hand um, when you compare that against the life safety um, problems of not having a house at all. Um, so I, I'm kind of in favor of some more flexibility in um, I think we have to have basic life safety standards, you know, smoke detectors, handrails, no drops, insulation so the place doesn't get frigid, um, and access to hot and cold water, you know, basic things like that that are still way better than, you know, two-thirds of the world in terms of accommodations. And um, and if, if we do that, then I think, you know, if we, if we had plenty of money for housing, then I'd say, yeah, let's increase the standards beyond that. But, but we don't which is a sad fact. And um, while people um, are living on the streets as an alternative to having what would be a pretty decent place to live, I think we should give them that option. Um, so I can I understand and I support the you know having some standards for, for tiny homes. Uh, I think one of the advantages of the RV standard, I, I don't know that very, very well, um, but um, if some of those standards and certifications allow financing for them, that can make a big difference also. Uh, I think that, I guess I'm saying I'm supportive of standards like that. I think that um, HUD's perspective, if they're saying these cannot be um, deemed long-term housing, I think that's one of those optimistic statements. Um, Dignity Village was never intended um, for long-term housing. But the truth is, you know, if society, based on some factors beyond the city of Portland's control, I mean, wage rates and all the other kind of economic factors, if there's nowhere you can get to as a next step, then people shouldn't be punished for that. Um, so if there's a, um, uh, I mean, it's nice to think that anyone who gets into a tiny house um, um, can be sort of a stepping stone towards a, a larger structure, but some people might not want that, um, and some people might not realistically be able to get the additional income or money it would take to get into a larger house, and um, I think that's okay. So I, I agree with what you're saying, and, and, and I wonder if you, there seems to be kind of a, marketing word here but kind of a brand conflict between kind of tiny houses as a solution for homelessness or people in the low end of the financial scale and then yet the kind of white hot heat that exists in the tiny house market where it's kind of a trendy thing to go tiny and tiny house on wheels and these beautiful homes that may cost eighty, ninety thousand dollars or more uh, to 
do you see that as a bit of a conflict on both sides where some of the people are don't want to see this as a homeless kind of solution or or you know I don't even know if that's a question, but it's kind of a question. Do you see a conflict between the two sides of the economic um, output in both kinds of tiny homes? I don't see a conflict. I think it can be they can be support each other. I mean, I think that. Um, I mean, I've I've been contacted by folks with um, Portland area nonprofits interested in doing um, tiny housing. Um, Oregon prison system has um, some enterprises where they make and sell products and they've talked about they're very interested in getting an assembly line building tiny homes on wheels really and mm-hmm. yeah um and they just need someone ready to buy quite a few of them yeah, there, there's there's a lot of interest in, and i think that the um uh the sort of um well-off people building beautiful custom tiny homes is potentially opening up the market for broader use by people who who don't have those kind of bucks it's, fu- it's funny though, Eli, the, the, the homes that I see, and maybe this is just my bourgeois perspective, but the homes that I see like bourgeois. at... Bourgeois. Um, yes. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's that place up in uh, Olympia that we interviewed? Oh, my God. Uh, Quixote Village. Quixote Village, yeah. You know, this, you see those, I guess what I, let me see if I can get to the essential of my comment. The tiny houses that people are building that we, that we interview here, are oftentimes oftentimes beautiful basically little luxury units yep yet the people the houses the tiny houses that are being built for the homeless are really stripped down they're shacks i mean they're utilitarian they're super basic it's like and maybe maybe the people that live in those feel even though they're not as beautiful that they are beautiful because it beats living in a tent or on the sidewalk but it's well, that's exactly the point, is okay. that it's a lot better than living where else someone might be, be right. stuck. Right, okay. I think that the tiny house, um, the, the gorgeous ones, and I love those things too, um, a tiny house, the other advantage of them, we used to do these um, tiny house bike tours around Portland, Petalpalooza, and and, um, and they continue on for accessory dwelling units. It gets people who are deciding what kind of house to get um, inspired that they could live in some place smaller. Yeah. And, not many will actually live in tiny homes, but the fact that they're out there, they're visible, they're popular, um, I think routinely gets people thinking, boy, I don't need to have that 2,000 square foot house. Maybe I could have one that's 1,200 square feet. Yeah. And getting people to downsize. I mean, I think there's a, there's a, there's a great narrative with them, which comes from those, what you ever call like yuppie tiny houses, um, that Sorry. these are high end, they're, they're, okay. they're well designed, they're classy, um, they're fit, you know, and People do things for people are making their home buying decisions um, or, or renting decisions. They they make things maybe they make it for environmental reasons or affordability reasons, um, but a lot of times they make it because it's cool. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we get the uh, I mean, I think the baggy um, the tiny house movement could kind of say you know live in a you know a a, a crisp cool tiny house. Or if you want, live in a, a big old two thousand square foot house, and it's like wearing baggy clothes. You know, it's it's like th- there there's an opportunity for some um, um, shaping of preference. You know, in the marketplace, right. and um, I think tiny houses are really a leader in that. And um, so, even if you don't see God's people going to tiny houses, if the movement can help um, popularize living in more compact spaces, that could have a huge impact. Uh, 
beyond you know beyond just the the tiny house on wheels community i think you can argue that it is having that exact impact i hope well i hope so but the average home size in the united states is you know it, it dropped during the recession it's back to 2000 um 2400 square feet and i think it might still be climbing um so we have more to do but i think that it's um it has definitely opened up the doors for people to think hmm, when i'm getting a house maybe it would be nice to live in in less space yeah um, yeah so, um, first of all, Perry, I don't mind that you call my house a yuppie house, but we're going to be a little bit more uh, modern in our in our uh, terminology. We're going to call it hipster houses, okay? Okay, okay that's a good idea. Hipsters yeah. or yuppies? Hamster yeah. are they yeti? No. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. You can call it shed quarters, she shed. Okay. Uh, I like shed quarters. Girl yeah. cave. How about people living their values? There, there you go. go. Yeah. Anyways, um, however, let's go back to the conversation, I suppose. Um, so you're in a great position. Like you said, you have people calling you and, and asking you for advice and your advocacy on behalf of their organizations. And you're in a really That's not always a great position. Sometimes you sleep a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. However, my question for you yeah. is, I'll be succinct, um, what advice? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. We can embrace my method of questioning. Um, so my question is, what do you recommend for in the tiny house community? What do you recommend for individ individuals? How do they advocate on behalf of the tiny house movement? Um, how do they, you know, get together so that we all have the same voice? Or do they need to? I think. Tiny house advocates should do more to um, find common grounds for advocacy with organizations that serve people who don't have much money um, and to kind of bridge that economic um, hurdle um, because I think there's obviously huge environmental benefits of tiny homes living on small environmental small carbon footprints and mobility of life, but those are not as compelling to um, electeds as the housing crisis is. Yeah. Um, so I think that that kind of alliance would be really helpful for the tiny house community. Do you see and, that as a natural alliance? I say that with with skepticism. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's not, it's going to take a little work, but um, I'd say that um, I'm not sure how much progress, as, as you were mentioning previously, the tiny house movement has made in terms of creating a legal path for itself. Yeah. Um, and this, um, but there's massive housing shortages, um, especially at the lowest income levels nationally and in you know in urban areas. Um, so, for tiny houses to be recognized as a solution to that, there needs to be some. Um, the case has to be made. You know, the, the tiny housing is not just for the um, affluent um, people who've got $50,000 in their back pocket and they dream of a simple life um, that they might only do for a year or two. Yeah, you know, right. it's, it's got to be a model that works, sure, for them, yes, but also for people who don't have housing choices and right. are just trying to figure out how to get a good night's sleep. Um, and in a safe way, um, it's got to work for both those folks, and um, I think the the folks who got the fifty thousand dollars in the back pocket are going to continue to be frustrated by codes that, that block the housing type, right? Um, and, until they figure out how to create a legal path for them, and, right. and part of that is to make sure that this housing type, which some neighbors will resist, um, is that there's some there's some way that it helps 
you know, meet public policy goals of, of providing affordable housing. Right. Um, otherwise, it's going to be hard to argue with the, the neighborhoods that don't want anything funny parked in their property. Yeah. Um, even though they, they probably already do allow some, <laughs> you know, there's a proliferation of the number of backyard sheds from Lowe's or Home Depot yeah. is, um, this can be found sprinkled in neighborhoods rich and poor. Mm-hmm. Um, but letting someone live in one of those things is, is unlikely, especially in neighborhoods that are that are neighborhoods that are well off. So it's not like we don't have all kinds of small structures littering backyards all over the place. Right. Um, but if we're going to try and make the case that some of them should be lived in, then um, it's going to be important to couple that case with um, as a, as a way to help address um, the housing shortage we have. So arguably, Portland is is at the epicenter of the tiny house movement. Um, whereas there's, you know, housing crises throughout the United States. Uh, Portland really is at the epicenter. It's arguable, but it pretty much is when you look at all the kind of who's who that lives in Portland. Why why Portland? Uh, Portland's got a nice history of being early adopters for stuff. Um, we're kind of proud of it, I think. And we're, we're kind of a city where we don't, if we're trying to think of a new idea, we don't necessarily look around and see if someone's done it first. We just go for it. Um, we have, a, as other cities do, a complaint-driven zoning process. So if you're on good terms with your neighbors, you're unlikely to get a complaint. And you can do um, things that the code doesn't necessarily allow. That happens not just with tiny houses, but with you know poultry and um, <laughs> all kinds of other like goats and stuff. You know, things that, that may not be technically following the, the rules, but um, neighbors think is kind of kind of cool and, and aren't complaining about it. Um, and... Um, and Portland's also kind of a, a, a West Coast city where we people like their own four walls. You know, there's there's lots of um, compact housing options um, like homes divided into multiple units, things like that. Um, you also see those in Portland, but um, like in Seattle, apartments are all you know those those took off um, as tiny little dwellings. Um, Cluster together inside larger official um, home units. What did you call them? What did you call them? Apartments. Apartments. It's basically a, a eight bedroom house, where each bedroom is a lock off suite. Oh wow! Rented out very affordably. Huh. Remember and Rachel Gaines was talking about pushback against those yeah. things, but um, it's an attached housing form. Got it. Um, mm. And Portland has some versions of that, but um, I don't know. There's sort of a frontier mentality out here. As, as someone, as I said, I grew up in Washington D.C., where I grew up in row houses. Um, I hear people kind of like to have their own four walls, and tiny houses um, fit that. For sure. Um, so anyway, those are some of the reasons. But Portland is not necessarily the leader in supporting um, tiny houses for the lowest income residents. I mean, Eugene's done some um, uh, great codes lately to allow in a backyard um, up to one per lot a hmm. Uh, I don't remember what they're called, but they're basically a, a, a structure on skids that's habitable huh. um, as long as you don't charge rent. Same provisions allowed for um, churches, you know, in the parking lots. They have up to six of these structures. Um, they can legally be occupied. But no um, rent. It, but no rent? Um, I don't think they're allowed to charge rent. That's I'm not positive. But the idea is not, is they, they don't want this to be used for like Airbnb, little backyard. Right, um, right. Things. They, they want it to be really addressing the, the, um, the housing crunch. Um, crunch there, and uh, so that those are those. Neither of those things have, have happened in Portland. I know there was talk with the housing crisis about um, Portland doing some pretty quick code changes to um, provide some affordable housing options, like adding extra kitchens into 
homes, mini kitchens into homes. Yeah. So they, you know, households that are doubling up can do so legally. And also maybe allowing um, tiny houses um, and, and there's some other code changes, and it, it didn't seem to go anywhere. That's what I thought. Um, so mm-hmm. we're, we're, not, we're not always the, the leader we like to think we are. We, mm-hmm. we're, we're good at navel-gazing also. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So Perry's doing right now. Um, hey, I think we have our show title. Yeah, navel gazing in a tiny house. Um, Eli, what? So, kind of flipping on the on the on the other side of that, who in the world do you do you see that's doing something really interesting in tiny houses that's kind of under the radar? I assume you've documented the little tiny house community um, pods. I think that's happening in Portland. It is happening in Portland where um, there's a single-family house with a decent-sized lot around it, and you've got you know three to five tiny houses um, on the property. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I think that's a, it's a, it's a wonderful model, and it's broadly replicable, um, especially in neighborhoods where the residential housing density is not all that high. Um, and... Um, Trying to think, I'm not. You caught me on. I'm trying, I was trying to think of something else, but that's that's, that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. No, that's a good one. Do you want to say what you were thinking? Oh no, I, I that that was the end of what I was thinking. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Are you? Do you have any um, uh, tiny house pro- building projects that you're looking at doing? I I don't right now. Um, I, I've got these two little cabins, um, which is just sort of a fun side project. Yeah. Um, and I, I, would, I would like to do more of that. Um, I, the projects I have on the on the boards, I am doing one um, accessory dwelling unit to the side of an old farmhouse in southeast Portland, south of Tabor. Huh. It'll be sold separately as condominiums. Um, I think that that model will um, gain more traction in Portland, especially as housing prices have gone up. I was just up in Vancouver, B.C. Um, this past weekend where um, they... Um, go way beyond um, what Portland does in terms of numbers of accessory dwelling units. And I think that it's only a matter of time before um, developers don't just covet houses with side lots that they can build on, but covet houses with big backyards where they can create additional dwellings, whether they be accessory dwelling units or detached bedrooms or something, some places people can live on lots in small homes within easy walking distance of downtown. I think there's a big market for that. but my projects coming up are actually trying to do bring nicer examples of the row house to Portland, where you get maybe one thousand square foot, you know, plus or minus um, attached homes um, that look really, really sharp. So I got one project that'll be like eleven hundred square foot, three bedroom units, row houses, three or four with a central courtyard and a common house, and another one coming up that'll be um, twenty one um, homes um, plus an existing house. Where the average, where half the houses will be 800 square feet or less. Um, where are those uh, two projects? They're both in the Coley neighborhood. Oh, um, okay. Got some information on my website, orangesplot.net, for upcoming projects. Oh, that's Thanks. perfect. Because I just wanted to yeah. ask. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. Orange but those Splot. are attempts to try and get some affordable, um, in the in these cases, for sale housing. Although I love rental stuff too. Um, options out there that um, that are kind of a counterpoint to what the market's building. Um, typically. You know, 2,500 square foot, large single-family detached homes. Yeah. Um, just trying to show that other models can work well. Very no, cool. Those are both sound like fantastic projects, yeah. and especially that they're happening in Portland. Yeah. Um, but, Eli, can you, what is Orange Splot? Can you kind of share with listeners how that story came to be for that brand name? Sure. It's, um, 
Well, if anyone's got kids out there, it's a great book by Daniel Pinkwater called The Big Orange Blot. And um, Never heard I, of it. No. it was one of my favorite books as a, as a kid. It's basically about a guy, Mr. Plumbean, who has a, a seagull drops a can of orange paint on his house. And his neighbors all who get on his case about cleaning it up because all the houses on the street look the same. And he instead goes and paints his house outlandish colors and plants baobab trees in the front and puts a hammock up and an alligator and decides to make the house as an expression of his dreams. Right, and, that's awesome. Right, that is awesome. Yeah, when his neighbors start, to, they, they pull him outside and say, hey, bud, we got to talk, have some lemonade at night. And the neighbor, instead of talking Mr. Plumby down, the neighbor turns his house into a ship and it, and it rolls on that way um, <laughs> as each house on the street becomes... Um, a reflection of the person's dream. So I highly recommend wow. it. It'll take you five minutes to read it. Wow. And that was the reason I picked my company name. Show hey, notes. listeners, the first person to tweet at us with the word orange splot in your tweet will send you a copy of the book. Where's he going to tweet to? Just four tweet bucks. using orange. I, I four bucks. Your yeah. Well, you know, I got a tiny budget. So, um, yeah. yeah, just tweet <laughs> Just tweet anything. Just tweet with a with pound sign orange splot. How will we know that they've, tweet, that they've tweeted? Well, we'll look. It's, it's we searchable we on Twitter. A, we don't find it. But we don't have a... We don't have it didn't take you long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Me. they okay. could do it in 10 minutes, right? Okay. They could have sure. already been done. Well, hopefully it's not a very common vernacular because then we're screwed. <laughs> right. but first one, after maybe, it airs. Maybe we can read this, read the book on in the next podcast. Yeah, it's only be, five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can take on character. Anyway, Eli, you've been... I, I really appreciate, seriously, I appreciate your intense... Your your quiet, intense sincerity on this topic. You're you're an awesome guy, and we we love what you're doing. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's yeah. Been fun. Thank, thank you for being Thanks. here. Thanks. Have and, a great day. And tune in next week, listeners, for another episode of Tiny House Podcast, where we will interview. It's never. We never know. For we sure. never know. Actually, but we'll have it set up. We kind of yeah. know, but kind of, so but not really. So, we never, yeah. see you guys. See ya. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye.